0: Good morning. So, before we look at the scripture, I want to introduce it with a story from a road trip I took uh, in 2002. And that was a trip to Kenya, working with a church that was a partner church to the church where I was serving. So, we went to Kenya with the intent of trying to go up to the northeast part of the country, if we can have the map up when Matt gets to that. and we're looking to a way to connect with a tribal group in the northeast part of Kenya, the Azuri tribe, that's, as far as we know, has no church, It has never had a church in its people group. So it's way up in the northeast corner, and it's right near the border of Somalia. It's in a nat- natural preserve called Bony Land. So those people are often called the Bony people. So we, we flew into Nairobi, spent a couple days with the, the church we partnered with, Karen Community Church in Nairobi. And then a team from that church, a team from the church I was a part of, took a flight to the coast and then took a long trip in the back of a pickup truck, two pickup trucks, to get to Boneyland. Boneyland is kind of a a wild experience because it's very dry, somewhat desert-like, but there is also plenty of trees and things around. Almost no water sources available. And it's a place where there's some conflict between Christians and Muslims. They're both very interested in having a presence there. So we can go to the next slide. That's a hospital building that was built by Christians many years ago. Well, not many years ago, back in the late 90s. But because it's in a, a political district that's dominated by Muslims, it was never allowed to open. So the building's been sitting there, ready to be used, but there's some conflict. And then next slide. The Bony people are tribal. They live in grass huts. They live off the land. And they've eaten most of the good things to eat in what is called the Boneyland Natural Preserve. So there's some intent on the government to help them. So the question is, if you're going to go into a Muslim-dominated district of Kenya as Christians, and you're going to go within a mile of the border of Somalia, where even back in 2002 it was a frequent experience to have Somalians come down and raid that part of Kenya, do you go alone? Do you go quietly, stealthily? or do you have some help?" So we had some help. We had two Kenyan national soldiers who went with us, and they were armed with rifles. And at first glance, I didn't know that they were going to be all that much help. They didn't seem to be the most disciplined of soldiers that I've ever seen, at least. And the closer we got to Somalia, the, the more nervous they seemed to get. <laughs> first, the guns were on their back. When we got closer and closer to the border, their guns were in their lap. And when we got out, then the guns were pointed. (laughs) They were just ready for anything. So I felt better then. And so it was an interesting experience in that we found a school that we were trying to help. We brought school supplies. We shared paper and pens and things. The students had no supplies at all, these bony students. But they had a teacher. The teacher was a Muslim man from Nigeria who was paid by Saudi Arabia to come and teach the bony children. Next to the, the very primitive school building, and I don't have a picture of it, but right next to it was a beautiful, small, but beautiful mosque, paid by, for by Saudi money. So this tribal village, a few grass huts, a very primitive school building, and a beautiful mosque. And so we did ask, do the nationals, do the, the bony people who ever go into the mosque? And the teacher, who spoke very good English, said, no, nobody goes into the mosque, <laughs> Well, we're happy that it's here. It's our way of saying this is Muslim land. So that tension continues. The church in Nairobi continues to try to reach out to those people. It's gotten harder and harder to go that direction in Kenya. If you see the news about Kenya, and every now and then you can see a little bit. Uh, if you really want to get any national, international news, you better go to BBC News or something like that to find it. But you'll find information about Kenya. And there's, there's frequent crossing of the border from Somalia and uh, people who are coming to take kidnap, basically, anyone they can find, they make money. So we won't be making that trip again anytime soon. But the whole point is that we went with, with the assistance of the government, with soldiers to help protect us on what could have been a dangerous trip. We're going to look at Ezra this morning when he decides to do something a little different on his road trip through very dangerous territory as well. Mind Remember, last week, Doug talked about Ezra's getting ready to go back to the promised land, getting ready, gathering the people who would go with him, gathering the the Levites, making sure that he could find the right people. And it was a significant thing for Ezra to, to go back and take another group of Israelites back to Jerusalem. But Ezra is very interested that, as Doug put it, the kingdom was kept pure, that there wasn't a mixture of the kingdoms. So Doug reminded us for us that that means that I love this, this thought. We need to be Rahab, not Achan. We need to be Rahabs, not Achan's. We need to be people who trust God, simply trust Him, are faithful to Him, like Rahab. Now, he wasn't saying, I don't think we need to be prostitutes. I didn't, I didn't hear that part, anyway. Rahab was that. We don't need to be that. But we need to be faithful, simply trusting. Achan, on the other hand, remember, it didn't end well for him or his family. We don't need to be like that, unfaithful letting the other kingdom, the the other side, infiltrate our family life, make us materialists, make us idolizers. We need to be more like Rahab in that sense. And we need to do our part of keeping the kingdom pure. But for us, that's simply probably going to mean taking some steps of faith. So I want to look at Ezra today, just a few verses from chapter 8, as he prepares to go on this long journey that he's going to take with the Israelites he's bringing back. And this is what he says, in verse chapter 8 of Ezra, verse 21 through 23. He said, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king... The hand of God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Ezra decides not to ask for two army soldiers with guns, or actually a whole band of army soldiers on horses. No cavalry going with him. He simply says, I can't do it he felt ashamed to ask for help from the king in that way. Why? Because he had told the king that God was on their side. Now, one of the fascinating things about this little vignette that we're going to focus on today is how different Ezra is from Nehemiah 14, 15 years later. When Nehemiah will take that same journey, almost the same route, about 900 miles, it it will take Ezra almost four months to complete that journey. It could be done shorter, I'm sure. An army could make that journey much quicker. But Ezra was going with a a mixed group of people, some older people, probably some women and children. It was a long journey. It was a hard journey. It was through dangerous territory. There would be bands of raiders there. Ezra says, I can't ask for that help from the king. We're going to have to trust God. Nehemiah asked for the help. (laughs) He wants the help. He wants armed soldiers going with him to make sure the journey is safe. So it kind of raises the question, How could two men, both in scripture, both have books written by them, about them, in their name, how can they land on the opposite side of a very simple thing like, do you get help from a secular government to make a journey through a tough territory to get to the promised land that God's chosen you to go to? Is there a right or wrong? Was one of these guys right? Was one of these guys wrong? And the answer to that, of course, is no, not really. And there are other times in in history and in Scripture where we can land in different places on an issue. Uh, One that Paul talked about a couple times in in Corinthians and in Romans was this whole issue of, well, of of meat. The issue of meat. You remember the issue of meat. So you go into town and you see there's a festival going on. It's a pagan festival and they're offering sacrifices and they're offering some meat on the sacrifices. And you don't participate in that because it's a pagan ritual and you're following Christ. So you just watch that from a distance. Maybe it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You're in shopping in town. Later that day, about 5 o'clock, some of the meat that had been offered to the pagan god in town is now for sale in the marketplace. The same meat. Some of it was left over. It's now for sale. Great price. Discounted price. Get it while you can before the flies eat it. So you, you look at that and say, hmm, I could have steak tonight. Well, maybe lamb chops. Who knows? Probably wasn't barbecue. So could have steak, could have lamb chops. I don't know. I know where the meat came from, but it doesn't bother me because to me all things are pure. So, you know, you buy that. You take it home. You, you put it out on the barbecue and you have it for dinner. And you're not bothered. Your conscience is not scarred at all because you know that it's meat. doesn't matter. But your neighbor next door who's also a Christian, uh, his conscience isn't quite that way. Uh, for him, to know that meat had been offered to a pagan idol or god makes, makes it unpure for eating anyway, no matter what. So for him, if he sees you eating meat that he knows that you got from the marketplace after it had been offered as worship to an idol, to a false god, it, it stuns his conscience. It bothers him a lot. So Paul says, you know, there's two places to land here. And I'm not going to unpack that argument. That's not the point of Ezra. Except simply to say... We can disagree about some things, and some of us can have heartburn over things that others of us have no heartburn over in at all. And there are doctrinal issues that we can also disagree upon, secondary issues. I mean, I'm not saying we disagree on the nature of the atonement or that salvation is by faith alone. There are some things we, we better be agreeing on, Paul and the rest of Scripture, all Jesus' words tell us. But there are some issues that are not as clear. they are secondary ones, and we We'll find that if we were to poll our crowd here, we'd find different viewpoints on certain issues of doctrinal belief. And that's okay, because we agree about the essentials. So for for Nehemiah and Ezra, two men leading God's people, one saying, I can't ask the king for help to get to to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah saying, I'm asking for help because I want to get there safely. There's not a right or wrong answer. But we want to look at, so why for Ezra was this a big deal? What makes it such a big deal for him? Why does he think it's so important that he can't ask the king? When he tells us, he says it right in what we, what we read. So let's look at that again. Verse 22, he says, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. He was ashamed. Why? When he says so in the next part of that verse. Because we had told the king some certain words. We had said something to the king. We had told the king, God's for us. God's with us. Now, Artaxerxes, the king, he might have some question about whether God is really with Ezra. He might have some wonder if God is really with the Israelites. Remember, where are the Israelites at this point? They're in exile in Babylon. And if Artaxerxes was a thinking king, he might wonder, hmm, God's for you? (laughs) What are you doing here? Isn't he the one who sent you here? Isn't he the one who drove you out of your land in the first place? Isn't that what you would say? That actually it was your sin that led to this? And that God turned his back on you and allowed you to be taken away by the Babylonians? Isn't that what you'd say? And now as the Persian king, I'm going to let you go back and go and join some of the other ones that have already gone back. But in reality, if Artaxerxes was thinking about it, and I'm not saying he was... But he might wonder, hmm, why do you think God is for you so much? Well, for Ezra, he knows God is for him. Why? In part because he's going back. And he's been called to go back. And he's bringing back with him people who will serve God in Jerusalem. It's a needed road trip. It's a pilgrimage in the right direction. And it's a step of faith, for sure. But his concern isn't so much just about his own safety he is concerned. It's not that he's not. In fact, he prays and fasts that they'll get there safely. He wants to arrive there. He doesn't want to be defeated or killed by enemies or kidnapped or robbed, but he has a greater concern. There's something on his mind higher than his safety, and that's the very name of God, the reputation of God, the glory of God. So what would shame Ezra is for Ezra to go to the king and say, We need help to get back. We need soldiers to protect us along the way. We need a whole convoy of people to surround us and keep us safe. He doesn't want the king to ask the question, Oh, God's not for you? You need help from us because God won't protect you? You see the tension he's living with. And you can see why it's so important that he proclaims a fast at the river to humble himself and the whole group of people going back to implore God for the safety that they're going to count on. It's an act of faith. Now, the reality is that anytime we live the Christian life, we're living by faith. That's what Paul calls it. That's what Jesus said we we have to do. We live by faith, not by sight. We serve a risen Lord, but we've never seen him. We worship a God that we don't see with our eyes. We do it by faith. We believe what's in the scripture by faith. We walk every day putting to death sin in our lives by faith. We trust God that he's the one who's going to transform us by faith. We live everything by faith. But we can live and call it Christian living without really demonstrating much faith. At least in the West. We have almost everything provided for us in that we earn money or have earned money. If we're retired, we have an income we can go and buy the things that we need. We have electricity coming into our homes. Most of us have indoor plumbing, I think, in this, in this room. <laughs> They're things that we just have, right? To, to live our life day to day can look like just everything is the same. We look like everybody else. I mean, there are, there are days probably in most of our lives where we don't consciously, intentionally have to live by faith or it doesn't feel that way because we just do what we do. It's all there. So for Ezra, that's not living life by faith. So what is it for us? I want to get to that in a minute. To live by faith, intentionally, consciously living by faith. If it's true for the individual, though, I think it's also obviously true for the church. That the church can also go through periods of time, the church being any, any congregation. Where the reality is, we're not really doing much by faith we're just doing what we do. We hold services every week. We have programs and activities. We have leaders. We have buildings. We have the things that we call church life. And, and we can do those things because we have freedom to do it in our country. Thanks be to God. We're not persecuted for our faith in very specific ways. We have a lot of freedom in the West that the rest of the world doesn't have when it comes to being Christian. So the church can find itself also really not consciously acting and living by faith. I think in some ways, it gets even worse than that. Talk about that in a minute. For Ezra, this important decision, do I get government help to get to where I'm going? No. I want to live by faith. I want God's glory to be shown. I want the fact that we get from point A to point B to be only because he is the one who got us there, not because we had Persian soldiers along the way. Why again? Well, first thing, he's most concerned about God's glory. That's the driving thing in Ezra's life. He wants God's glory to be the overriding concern of his life. Or, or as Jesus put it, want to put the kingdom of God first. Seeking God's kingdom first, letting everything else be added, but first being God's kingdom. He wanted to make sure that the Israelites who were going with him understood that. That they saw that they were trusting first and foremost by faith in a God who could get them from point A to point B. That God was the one leading them on that journey. They wanted; he wanted them to be aware of that, to take every step along the way with that in mind. So it starts with gathering together by the river to pray and fast, implore God, ask Him for help, and then notice by the end of that, they fast and they ask, and He heard their entreaty. That's an act of faith. That's saying, God, this depends on You. So. That was a big concern. It wasn't just so he'd get there. It's for God's glory. So that at the end of the day, there would be someone who could say, the only way we got from point A to B was God. That's the only way it happened. It was his doing. Let's give him the glory for what happened. That's the first thing. The second thing is I think Ezra understood that people who are called to live by faith have to exercise that faith. I mean, faith is a gift. God grants it to us. We're told that. And once we've been given faith as a gift, we're to exercise that faith. Uh, some people have talked about the muscle of faith that has to be exercised. The only way that you can really exercise faith, I think, is to believe that God will do something you can't do. To believe that he will act in such a way that's greater than what the accumulation of human effort will accomplish. To try things that only God's going to make happen, that you couldn't make happen, whether it's individually or, and certainly as a church, to actually have a vision that God's going to do something in our midst or through us, to the ends of the earth perhaps, and it's only going to happen if he does it. That's the only way. So we're going to have to have faith to believe that and to keep going through it because there'll be hardships, there'll be roadblocks, there'll be stumbling points in the church, in our own lives, and we do it by faith. Now, some would say, well, isn't that like testing God, though? Don't you, aren't you testing God if you say, God, you've got to do this? And I'm not saying we have to test God that way. I mean, Jesus said we're not to do that, right? He told the devil you shouldn't test the Lord your God. He quoted a scripture from the Old Testament. That's a different kind of testing, I think. That's telling God what to do and making sure that we're holding him accountable to do it. That's not the kind of testing I'm talking about. But in a sense, we do test God in that we put our faith in him and see if he'll deliver. And if we're in his will, we know he will, right? But it doesn't always work in our timing. So there's a right way to test God. And Hebrews 11.6, I think, gives us some, some idea what that looks like. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You've got to have faith to do that. It's a gift of God, but without it, it's impossible to please him. So we draw near to him, and we act as if he's real. We actually live our lives believing God is real, and he will do things through us individually in a family setting in the church. Now, you think of faith, and you think of heroes of the faith, Chapter 11 of Hebrews gives us heroes of faith, people who believed God and did all kinds of amazing things as God worked through them. Sometimes they ended up dead because of it, but they didn't count that as a problem because that was God working through them nonetheless. If you think about history, man of faith, you kind of think about a man like George Mueller, that great British pastor of of a previous century, the 19th century. He was born in In 1805, he lived to 1898, so a good long life, George Mueller. Now, George Mueller was known for the fact that he he loved kids and he developed orphanages in in England. And so by the end of his life, it it was said that he had cared for over 10,000 orphans. He had built many, many homes for them. He built schools, 117 schools that taught Christian education to about 120,000 children in England. In a time when there wasn't a lot of Christian education around Bristol, England, where he lived. The thing about George Mueller, which is always called out as being so fascinating, is that he never asked anybody for help. I mean, he raised amazing amounts of money to do these things, to build all these buildings, to build 117 schools. He never asked for help. He never wrote a grant proposal. He never did a direct donor solicitation. He didn't have a major donor list that he worked through every day. (laughs) He didn't do it. He simply prayed. That's all he did. And he said, I'm not going to ask. He took Ezra's approach. I'm not going to ask people. I'm going to ask God. And God did amazing things. Provided a marvelous opportunity for this man to serve. Now, Mueller was, was kind of a different kind of fellow. He was a pastor. He pastored the same church for 65 years. Imagine that. I mean, he would have baptized some infants if he did that. Who He probably would have seen pass away before he stopped. 65 years pastoring the church, and it was a unique church. It was Baptist, but it was Calvinistic. So it was a little different in that sense for England and around Bristol area in the 19th century. It was also a church that was premillennial, but it celebrated the Lord's Supper every week. And he, he administered baptism, of course, but he allowed people to join the church who weren't baptized. He was eccentric. He kind of was a maverick. And he didn't do that just because he'd like to be a maverick. Some people do. Mueller wanted to do whatever he could do to serve people. That was his intent. And particularly the least of those. And orphans were the least of those among him that he chose to serve. So this maverick kind of person, not asking for help from anybody, but asking for God to provide what he needed. So as that began to happen all around, and people took notice of this. They realized, this Mueller guy, he's building yet another school. Where does he get the money? Where's it coming from? He's never asked us. He's never made a a public ask at the church that he's pastoring. So people began to, to say, George Mueller has the gift of faith, the spiritual gift of faith. You know, there's a list of some spiritual gifts. There's a couple lists, and one of those will list the gift of faith. And Mueller said, I don't have that gift. Of course, people looked at him, kind of funny. You don't have the gift of faith, and you're believing God to do the impossible. This is what he said. This is from some writing that that he did. He sort of told his own story in a kind of an autobiographical way. He said, think not, dear reader, the person reading his book, think not that I have the gift of faith, not the gift of which we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, and which is mentioned along with the gifts of healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, and that on that account I am able to trust in the Lord. It is true that I have faith, which I am enabled and able to exercise. It is altogether God's gift. It is true that he alone supports it and that he alone can increase it. It is true that moment by moment I depend upon him and that if it were not, if for only one moment left to myself, my faith would utterly fail. He said, but it is not true that my faith is the gift of faith mentioned in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 12.9. Corinthians he said, that's not the spiritual gift I have. He goes on to explain. For instance, the gift of faith would be needed to believe that a sick person should be restored again, though there is no human probability. So that takes the gift of faith. For there is no promise to that effect. There is no promise in Scripture that says, if you get ill to the point of death... You're going to be healed. There's no promise of that. It happens sometimes. Perhaps it takes the gift of faith in someone to make that happen. He said this, The grace of faith is needed to believe that the Lord will give me the necessities of life. If I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, there is a promise to that effect. It's Matthew 6, 33, and then 42. So Mueller's saying, I don't have the gift of faith. I'm no different than anyone else when it comes to faith. I just exercise the faith I have. God does it through me. He grows my faith. If he weren't doing it, as he said, I'd fail in a day. But I do exercise my faith. I believe God to be real. I believe to be true to his word. And so I act that way. Now, that's what faith in action looks like, I think. And that's why George Mueller set up all those orphanages, build those schools, in part because he wanted to show Christians, the church, and non christian the watching world, that God really does work, that faith in God works. So that's important for us because, again, don't want to downplay the fact that living the Christian life in the world takes faith. It does. We're bombarded daily by all kinds of temptations. The world, the flesh, the devil is against us. There's no doubt about that. Brothers, we need to have faith. And if we don't have faith, we'll know it soon enough. We'll see the attacks. We'll begin to fall under them. We depend on God for our faith and to strengthen our faith. Uh, we, can, we can be like the man who prayed the prayer to Jesus and asked him, I believe, I believe, help my faith. Help my faith to grow. Help me to really believe. We could be praying that, rightly so. But it's also possible in our Western culture to live a life that is so completely safe that we hardly have to exercise much faith. We trust what we have. We trust our bank accounts. We trust the houses we live in, the jobs we have. We trust the life, the structure, the superstructure, the infrastructure around us. It'd be easy to live that way and never exercise faith. The church can be the same way. You can grow a church without any faith. It's happening all the time. There are many churches in our country particularly that are growing, that really aren't growing by faith. They're growing, sure, because they have learned the secret of marketing the church. The secret's pretty simple. You simply find out what people want, and you give it to them. So if people want entertainment in the church, you give them entertainment. If they want an easy message, simple to, to follow, with no hardship, well, you give them that. You talk about all the good things God will do for you, because he's on your side. You'll be the champion. If they want a life that's easy in the Christian life, they want to believe it's hard, you never talk about sin. You certainly would never talk about hell. There are churches around, you know, that that don't do that. I mean, they never talk about those things. They make it easy to join the church. There are churches that, I mean, it's happened, even in Hampton Roads, there was a church at Easter that was giving away flat-screen TVs to the first ten first-time visitors. I was going to go, but I had to do something here that day. <laughs> it happens. There's a church in North Carolina that was called out a couple years ago because they do spontaneous baptisms sometimes on Sundays. And the pastor will say, you want to be baptized today? Come on down. And they, they plant people in the congregation who are, who are the first ones to get up and come on down to get baptized. They're not getting baptized. They're plants. They're church staff or members. But they need to get the crowd moving. I'm not sure that's doing it the way the scripture says to do church, right? But you can build huge churches and never have to have faith, apparently. If you have money and you give the people what they want. I remember Paul saying there's a problem with that. I think we sort of forget it sometimes that it could be a problem just giving everybody what they want. But see, living by faith is different. We want to see churches growing by faith, right? Because God gets the glory. So Doug Bunn sitting back there soon will be leaving to go on sabbatical and then planting a church the other side of town, and he wants to plant a church that's by faith. So he's counting on God giving the growth as they go and share the gospel, completely counting on God to do it. Doug's not even going to be giving away any flat-screen TVs. (laughs) Not even any iPads. I don't even I don't think he's gonna give anything away. I bet he I bet he'll give away Bibles. I bet he'll do that. That's growing by faith. So what does that mean for us as I come to a close? Notice what what happens for Ezra. He said, We're gonna do it this way. We're gonna gather together, we're gonna pray, we're gonna fast. So we're gonna say to God, You're first, you're most important, we're depending completely on you. We're gonna tell the king, well we're not gonna tell him anything except that we trust God. We're not going to ask for his help, and we're going to go. But first we're going to pray, and then verse 23. So we fasted, implored God, implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And he did that because the verse before, this is what Ezra knows about God. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. That's still true. The hand of our God is for all who seek him. If we seek him, we'll find him. If we follow him, he's with us and for us. But if we forsake him, his hand will be against us. So let me end with this from George Mueller. This is what he said when, we, when we're calling on God to seek him with some sense of urgency, to do what we can't do, and that for us, of course, often happens in times of crisis, because life's pretty easy for us. This is what Mueller ended on. My dear Christian reader, will you not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and the happiness of this way of casting all your cares and burdens and necessities upon God? This way is open to you as it is to me. Everyone is invited and commanded to trust in the Lord, to trust in him with all his heart, and to cast his burden upon him, and to call upon him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this, my dear brethren in Christ? I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which, while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you will yet be at peace because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. And he does. Leave today with that thought in mind. Have a great day.